there's always a choice in life. You choose the negative side or the positive side. And if you search for negativity, it's going to find you. And I feel the same with positivity. If you put that out in the world, then it's going to find you as well. Welcome to Priorities, the podcast about the things in life that really matter. I'm your host, journalist and coach, Lily Silverton. And each week, I'll be asking a new interviewee to open up about the things that are important and unimportant to them. What takes first place in their life, what they couldn't care less about, and what they'd like to work on a little bit more. Will you agree with their priorities? Will they make you reevaluate your own? Let's find out. My guest today is principal dancer with the Royal Ballet, Stephen McRae. Stephen is one of the dance world's most critically acclaimed performers, known for both his ballet and tap expertise. Awarded Best Male Dancer at the Critics Circle Dance Awards in 2011, Stephen performs lead roles in both classical and contemporary repertory at his home away from home, the Royal Opera House in London. When he's not on stage, you might find him on your screen, most recently playing Skimbleshanks in the film adaptation of Andrew Lloyd Webber's Cats. As one of the best male ballet dancers in the world, Stephen's job is, for most of us, incomprehensibly physically demanding. However, as you'll soon hear, it's his mental strength and flexibility that really gives him his unique and inspiring edge. Welcome, Stephen. Thank you so much for having me. It's such an honour to have you on here. I think the last time we spoke was maybe five or six years ago when I interviewed you for the Royal Opera House magazine. So I'm sure a lot has changed and I'm really looking forward to having a chat. The first thing I wanted to ask you is, how are you feeling right now at this minute? Where are you at on a scale of one to ten? Oh, okay. Um, to put a number on it. If I'm really, really honest, you know, we have to have such a a perspective on life and I'm beyond incredibly lucky. My, my wife and I are fine. Our three children are all healthy and happy. Um, we're in pure lockdown. We're not interacting in any way. So we, are, um, yeah, I think we're as healthy and as safe as we possibly can be. Of course, um, you know, we want to see our friends and our family and things like that. And of course, you know, eager to get back to work and to get performing again. But realistically on a you know scale of one to 10, you know, I think we're up there close to number 10. We're making the most of this situation and it's a unique situation. And uh, it's time with the children that you know, we're very fortunate to have. Not many people uh, get this intense time with their children, you know, balancing work and life and careers. And, you know, you, you feel like sometimes you're an accessory to your own life. So we're very fortunate um, to be in this particular circumstance. Of course, people are going through the most awful hell time. Um, so we're very, very fortunate. Indeed we are. Yeah, I feel the same way being with my little toddler, although she's pretty tiring at the moment. So <laughs> that's that was your first priority that you sent over to me, was your first priority of your life, the area that you prioritise is your children, your wife, and, and the life that you've created. Yeah, it's um, obviously the first thing I, I think of as soon as I wake up in the morning is the children. And that's either because I've woken up and, and I've thought about them or they have woken us up. So <laughs> <laughs> I 
Um, and with children, you know, particularly young children, the second they wake up, it's 100 miles an hour from the second they open their eyes. That's go, 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 go. Um, and to be honest, I've always wanted children. I've always dreamt of having my own family. And, uh, yeah, that's my, my pure focus. That's my number one focus is, you know, my children and my little family. And you have three children now. Yes. So we have Audrey, who's five, Frederick is three, and Rupert is eight and a half months. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So it's a, there's a lot of energy in this, in this house. And uh, I think obviously the lockdown just magnifies those energy levels. Do you think you've always been someone with a lot of energy? Obviously your job demands a lot. Mm. Yeah. I, I feel like I'm, I guess, naturally a very energetic person. Um, maybe I'm an all or nothing kind of person. I seem to go, 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 and then crash and then go, go, go and crash. Um, but I think that's sort of been from a young age as well. I, I think I was always told as a kid by my parents, if you're going to do something, do it properly. Um, so I think I've tried to just always live by that rule. Um, like if you're not going to actually really put the effort in and do it properly, then don't bother. (laughs) (laughs) Do you find it hard to balance your very demanding, all encompassing job with a family? I know your, your wife is a royal ballet soloist as well. And Mm. it's a parrot. Yeah, it's, you know, our job is not your typical nine to five. Um, we still get asked ridiculous questions sometimes by, by people. Um, they say, what do you do during the day? And, uh, obviously a lot of people don't actually understand that our profession, um, it's, it's quite normal to do a 12 hour day. So we start class at 1030 in the morning, uh, rehearse all the way through till 530 if there's a performance and then we'll have the performance at 7.30, which goes till 10.30 at night. So uh, a 12-hour day is very common for most of the, the dancers in the company. So to juggle that kind of workload with having a family can obviously be near impossible sometimes. Uh, I'm very fortunate as I'm a principal dancer, so I don't perform every single night. Uh, mm. And my schedule, it varies. So I can be rehearsing all day without a break. And then the next day, maybe I have two rehearsals. So I'm home much earlier in time for the school pickup and things like that. Um, my wife obviously has given birth three times in the last five years. So she's been on and off stage each time as well. And she's making her way back now after the number three, which to be honest is beyond supernatural to be honest I think for anyone to return to work after number three is an incredible accomplishment but to to do the job that she does which is obviously physical and all about your 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 body and how you can move and function um is truly remarkable um so within that time of her being on and off stage and maternity leave and things like that I have actually unfortunately had a number of injuries that have built up over the years and um spinning it into a positive. Luckily, a lot of my injuries have coincided with her going back to work and things like that. So um, particularly in the last you know, 18 months, we've been able to juggle a lot of our work schedule together um, and actually been fortunate to have a lot of time with the children um, because my rehab schedule, I can adapt it around when I need to go in and also 
with Lizzie returning from maternity leave, she can also adapt it. So, um, you know, sometimes I do the mornings, she does the afternoon or vice versa. And we've kind of carried that on into lockdown mode as well, to be honest. Yeah, we've done a similar thing in my family as well, splitting up the days. Yeah, I think obviously our eldest is at school. She's only in reception, of course. So, you know, there's no pressure whatsoever to be handing in work every single day. But for the children, they benefit from a bit of a schedule and obviously they will return to school at some point. So you don't want that to be such a shock to their system as well. So we've tried to just keep, you know, a bit of a casual routine going on um, at home. So I, I usually take the role of teacher in the morning and do the, the homeschooling. And uh, my wife goes upstairs and does her, her workout and her training to get back on stage. And then in the afternoon, well, we all have lunch together. And then in the afternoon we swap over and um, mama takes over and does all the, the activities and things. And I go upstairs and do my, my rehab plan, um, which twice a week I, I log on with my sports coach and my physio at the Royal Opera House. And we do it all through Zoom and, um, like, you know, like weekly checkups and seeing my progress. Wow. And do the kids have a ballet class incorporated? Into that <laughs> no, no. They, you know, we do a bit of everything with them, to be honest. You know, they do all their academics and then we try and just have fun with them, whether it's a bit of yoga or tennis in the garden. When I say tennis in the garden, I mean like two little plastic rackets in our, we've got a very small garden, but we make the most of it. Um, or if it's, you know, a quick tap lesson, which children being children, that lasts five minutes, of course. And, uh, you know, they, they're just into everything. You know, if, if you say, come on, let's go and do archery, then they'll be so excited and yeah, let's do archery. That's the best thing ever. And then if you go and say to them, right, let's go and, you know, make a mud pie out of dirt, they'll say, yeah, that's the best idea. So, um, they're at that wonderful age that, you know, you can just have fun really. Yeah. Sounds fantastic. So you are in the process of recovery right now. Mm-hmm. How, yeah. yeah. How's that going? You know, it's the most remarkable thing. I think dancers, of course, they shudder when you say the word injury, of course, like any sports person, any athlete, um, any musician, really anybody who uses their body as their instrument or their tool uh, of course, injury is always seen as the enemy. But um, when you when your profession demands so much of you, you know we're we're, we're performing and and working and pushing our bodies six days a week, sometimes twelve hours a, a day. Um, it's inevitable that your body is going to have to stop at some point and say, "Ooh, you know, I wasn't designed to do this." Um, mm. So thankfully, you know, there's a lot of sports science going into the world of dance now, and we're starting to learn a little bit more and trying to catch up with the sports world. And you know, we share a lot of research and science with a lot of the football clubs, and our surgeons are all the same, and things like that. Um, so, of course, you know, when it, you, when you have an injury, you can focus on the negative and think, "Oh my goodness, like this is terrible," and you know. I, I'm missing out on my performances and other people are doing my shows and you feel bad because they have to do more work and you also feel angry because you don't want (laughs) to be missing out on your own shows, but you can also flip it and look at the positives in each situation. And, um, you know, last October I stepped on stage. Um, I'd had to have three surgeries, um, in, what was it? It was 12 months. I'd had three surgeries um, to try and correct something down in my Achilles region. 
And each time I got back on stage and, you know, filmed Cats, the Hollywood film and all this sort of stuff. So I was never off stage for a huge period of time. I was fine to get back on and off stage. Um, so in October last year, I was stepping back on stage, having had the three surgeries and worked through the summer to get back on stage. And, uh, yeah, halfway through that performance, my Achilles snapped in front of the whole audience and nobody could have predicted it. They, they, you know, I'd had a scan 10 days before and my Achilles looked healthy and there was no sign of deterioration or anything. So there, there were no, um, obvious warnings. Um, I did have pain before the performance. I knew that. Um, but the scans were clear. So, um, when it snapped, it was beyond shock, to be honest. I, I think, uh, well, my sports psychologist has actually talked about it being as a, as a trauma and it, it was a trauma. Yeah. It happened in front of two and a half thousand people, um, with the whole orchestra playing and I couldn't do anything. I just had to stand there because I literally didn't have a leg to, <laughs> to stand on hobbling on one. Um, but of course, um, you know, you, you're, you're well looked after when you work for an organization like that. And 20 minutes after coming off stage, I already had a plan in place. The surgeon was informing everybody of what to do. And um, you then just have to focus on the positives. What can I do in this situation to gain something out of it and to, to learn, to develop, to grow? And um, that's been my intention. It's been six months now. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm learning every single day more and more about the body, about my mental health, um, able to watch my children much more because I'm around them a little bit more. Um, I finished a master's degree as well during that time. So that was oh, how casual. <laughs> Sorry. How casual of you. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I had a nice moment a few weeks ago seeing some surgical images and it was a nice realization to see how far I have come in the six months because, of course, when you're living with this, you know, I can't just say, oh, I'm focusing on my Achilles for one hour a day. Um, I live with it 24 hours a day. You know, I'm constantly aware of it because it's obviously still not 100%. It's only been six months and they had to reconstruct the whole thing. So... Uh, seeing the images from the surgery made me realize, okay, you've actually accomplished a lot in six months. And I know there's a huge journey ahead of me, but, um, yeah, it, the surgery and the injury and everything, um, as I said, nobody wants that to happen, but there's always a choice in life. You choose the negative side or the positive side. And, you know, if you search for negativity, it's going to find you. And I feel the same with positivity. If you, if you put that out in the world, then it's going to find you as well. So I just tried to maintain that positive approach to it. And, you know, some days are easier to do that than others, of course, but um, having my three little children and, you know, obviously my wife is the most supportive person on the planet around um, oh. does make it a little bit easier. Well, your um, your mental resilience is is really inspiring to hear. I think anyone after repetitive surgeries like that, and then what you say is a trauma. Of course, it was a trauma to go through to still come out of that and keep going, just keep moving through it. And what you say about negative and positive is so true. I say this when I work with clients all the time that although you don't want to ignore negative feelings, of course not, but the more that you say something is bad or is painful or difficult over and over to yourself again, it becomes a bit like a mantra and it becomes more and more true to you. And as you say, the more that you look on the positive side, the more that the positive stuff does come. Exactly. Yeah, I totally agree with you there. 
I um I was looking on your Instagram earlier and found this great thing that you wrote about your process of recovery and you said that it's just repetition of ordinary movements which anyone who's been through an injury knows that and I'm sure that most people who are you know not don't professionally use their body like you are probably useless at listening to their physiotherapist like me but um you said that you would watch paint dry if that's what you had to do to get you back on stage <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah I think um you know, anyone who's had to go through an intense physio period of time and, um, you know, this particular injury, obviously with my Achilles being reconstructed, I had to learn how to just stand again, learn how to, to walk, learn how to go up the stairs, um, simple things like that, like even putting a shoe on for the first time months and months after the surgery was without sounding dramatic, it was a traumatic experience because it was so uncomfortable and painful just to slide the shoe on. Um, but those kind of procedures and recoveries require um, routine. They, you, they require exercises that retrain your brain, basically, to send all these messages back to the joint or the, the tendon that's been recovered or healed and, and to say to it, it's okay, this is what you're meant to be feeling. Um, and, you know, it can be really frustrating when certain things like my car, for example, obviously just switched off completely. And uh, I, for the life of me, just could not get it to, to respond. Um, and this was, you know, weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and months, even months of uh, just repeat, 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 repeat. And then eventually you start to feel the slightest sensation um, and much of the rehab process, unfortunately, for, you know, an injury like an Achilles rupture uh, is repetition. So it can be very boring or, you know, very mundane and, and uh, not the most um, motivational or inspiring set of exercises that you need to do on a very regular basis. But as I mentioned, if the doctors and the physios and the sports scientists, if, if they literally said you have to stare at a wall and watch the paint dry for the next six months to get back on stage, then that's what I would do. So <laughs> I'm trying to just follow their guide, like gospel, I guess. And, um, but also listen to my own body as well and, and, um, allow my body to guide my way through it. So if there's a particular day that I feel like I'm fighting against it, um, I then just have to step away that day. And it's not like accepting defeat. It's uh, having the intelligence to just separate yourself from how you're feeling at that time so that tomorrow you can then benefit from your next session. Whereas if you just keep on bashing yourself into the ground, um, you're just digging a bigger hole, really. Yeah, absolutely. It's that innate listening, isn't it, of the body and the mind? Yeah, and anybody out there listening who you know, he's naturally driven or motivated. Um, I think it becomes normal to stop listening to your own body or mind because you always have in your head that, oh, that's you just being lazy or that's you being weak that day. Like you've got to ignore that, push through it, get over it. And um, I think anybody who is motivated can understand what I'm saying there. And it's really important um, I think it comes with maturity to be able to acknowledge that it's not a sign of weakness or laziness. Um, it's just, as I said earlier, it's just uh, an additional level of uh, awareness really of your own body and your mental health. Mm. And as you said earlier, the body can't work at full speed all the time. 
as well. No, and, you know, most athletes follow a regime that allows them to peak and then they have their moments where they can come down a bit from that and they peak again. You know, even footballers, they'll have their match and then they have a, you know, quieter day and then they have a training day and a quieter day and then a match. That just doesn't exist in our world. You know, we can be at full flight, 10.30 at night, flying across the Royal Opera House stage and 12 hours later, we're back in the studio going again. Um, 12 hours is not a long time to recover from a marathon. It's, <laughs> it's like doing a marathon every single day, six days a week. So, um, you know, dancers have to learn how to squeeze in recovery when they can. Of course, when you have three children at home, um, the, the amount of sleep and recovery reduces. Um, mm. But uh, then you get injections of energy in other ways from your children and you get a, a I think a more broad perspective on life as well. You know, I, I used to really beat myself up after shows because silly things didn't go the way I wanted them to go. And now of course I come home and, you know, sometimes one of my children will be awake at midnight because they need a bottle or something. And, um, you, you quickly just switch your mind into a different world and you go, okay, I did my best. I possibly could at that moment on stage. Of course, I always want to do things better than I did, but um, that was that. And this is life now. This is actual real life. This is a human who needs me. And um, you quickly get over the fact that you didn't do a pirouette the way you wanted to or something really minor like that. <laughs> <laughs> I remember coming um, for my tour around the Royal Opera House and seeing the shoes that the dancers use and you talked about it, how it's doing a marathon and every performance and how they you they needed for Swan Lake they needed a couple of pairs of shoes because they'd wore they'd wear through them which I thought was staggering yeah, yeah the ballerinas um you know the the ballerinas the girls obviously go up onto their toes so they have point shoes um most of them sounds barbaric most of them are made with like paper mache basically and that's how it's made hard um, some of the newer shoes have different uh, materials inside, but um, many of the ballerinas, you know, Swan Lake is four acts and the lead Swan, for example, she appears in act two, three, and four. Um, she might use a different pair of shoes for each act because they just give way and their feet are obviously super strong and, you know, they're, what they're doing on their feet is um, obviously not what the human body is designed to do. So. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's not heard of for a ballerina to go through a pair of shoes each act. <laughs> Staggering. So that brings us pretty well onto your second priority, which was pushing yourself to further your own capabilities, both on and off stage. Mm -hmm. Talk to me a little yeah. bit about that. Yeah. Um, I, I'm just always intrigued to try and, um, well, without sounding too simple, but to better myself. And whether that's stretching myself further, uh, you know, academically, artistically, um, just simply as a human, you know, I'm learning every minute of the day as a father, um, you know, it doesn't, doesn't matter how many books you read on parenting, nothing prepares you for becoming a parent. And um, so it's a, it's a constant, constant learning curve. And that's something I think that obviously continues to happen until the day you die in all walks of life. And I am just uber aware of wanting to, um, you know, expose myself to as many things as I can, um, and push myself. So whether that's physically getting stronger so that I'm able to, you know, tackle things 
with a different approach at work, um, then that's what that is. Um, whether it's exposing myself to certain literature or whatever, so that, you know, it might spark something artistically off in me, um, interests that inspire me, you know, my motorsport, I still love motorsport and I do get a lot of inspiration from, from that and from stories that have happened behind the scenes with all of that. And then, yeah, back to my, my family. So I, I don't know. I think it, it all links back to my parents, how they said to me, if you're going to do something, do it properly. And I like that mentality. And I try to sort of say that to my children as well, when they're doing their schoolwork or anything, to be honest, like don't just do the job half, <laughs> finish the job, do it the best you can and be proud of it. Be proud of what you're, you're putting your energy into. No point putting all this energy into things if you're not proud of it. Mm. How do you balance that with your health? Um, yeah, the best I possibly can, I guess. <laughs> um, you know, my wife and I live a very balanced lifestyle in terms of our diet and things. We don't, we don't follow any fad diets. We, we don't cut out anything from our diet, our diet. So, you know, we, we eat meat, we eat dairy products, we, we have our carbs, we, you know, we eat all our greens. Um, we have a glass of wine at night if we want to, um, you know, we just try and live our life as, you know, I say with the fingers in the air, a normal lifestyle. Um, but of course your body, it has to be treated like a car. And when I say car, I like to envisage it as a supercar. <laughs> um, if you put rubbish, if you put rubbish into a car, it's not going to function. Uh, it needs the right fuel for that car and your body's exactly the same, whether it's physically or mentally. Um, if you just keep on pumping it full of rubbish, to be honest, um, it's, it's not going to perform the way you want it to perform. So, um, as much as we do have a balanced lifestyle, of course it can't be balanced um, and leaning towards junk food and you know <laughs> alcohol all the time because that's just not going to help us. Um, but then vice versa, if if you say me particularly, if I say I'm not having something or I shouldn't have it, I want it more. So <laughs> I'm better off just to have you know a bit of everything moderately and. Uh, yeah, I think that helps my wife and I just to try and keep as sane as possible. <laughs> yeah, I feel the same way. Elizabeth's a nutritionist as well, isn't she? Uh, yeah, she's studied nutrition. So she has a good, um, very good understanding of, you know, just how the body um, needs to be fueled. And, you know, it's great, obviously, with our children. They've all got different um, requirements, you know, analogy to this or an intolerance to that, um, which is new to my wife and I, because we both don't have any of those. We've always eaten and had everything. So, uh, her, her knowledge in that world has definitely been a benefit, uh, mm -hmm. helping our children, but also to, to her and I as well. Nutrition is a priority for me. And I know that the more plants I eat, the better I feel. However, with a busy life, I, like you, I'm sure, don't always manage to get my daily quota of greens. So I'm very happy that this season of priorities is sponsored by Foga, a new brand that makes plant shakes, pre-portioned blends of freeze-dried fruit and veg that you simply shake up with water or milk to create a restaurant standard smoothie at home. I'm not really into protein shakes or powders. However, these are genuinely amazing. They're so easy and delicious. Right now, I'm digging the ginger and greens combination 
and my daughter is a big fan of berries and cinnamon. They contain zero extra sugars or chemicals, through freeze-drying have all the nutrients locked in, and they're whole plant, meaning they have all the fiber of fresh fruit and veg. It's really the lazy person's dream. If you are looking to easily and affordably prioritize your nourishment, then I'd love to find out if you enjoy FOGA as much as I do. They're offering five pounds off your first box with the code PRIORITIES. Check them out on www.foga.co. That's F-O-G-A. Thank you to FOGA. I love sleep. Seriously, it's one of my biggest priorities and I'm a different and much improved person when I get my full eight hours. So I'm incredibly excited that this season of priorities is sponsored by Sleep Siren, an independent lifestyle brand fueled by a passion for health, wellness, and great sleep. Sleep Siren brings together science, education, and luxurious products to offer meaningful support to busy people who could sleep a little or a lot better. As the mother of a toddler and having suffered from insomnia on and off my entire life, I know firsthand how helpful Sleep Siren can be at identifying and covering your sleep needs. Whether you're looking to read an expert article on the latest sleep science, treat yourself to some insanely soft silk pajamas, or simply find a luxurious eye mask, Sleep Siren have everything you need to sleep well tonight. If you would like to improve your sleep, I'd love for you to have the same experience as me with Sleep Siren. So they're offering 20% off with the code PRIORITY20. Check them out on www.sleepsiren.com. Thank you to Sleep Siren. I'd love to go back to this idea of furthering your capabilities on stage because anyone who watches you, you know, I've watched you a number of times, would just think, how could you even further yourself in any way? You are an absolutely staggering dancer. So what does it mean for you to further your own capabilities? How, what does it look like for you? Because I guess from the outside, I wouldn't see how that would happen. All right. Uh, well, that's very <laughs> kind of you. Um, I always say to young young students who, you know, I do interviews with or things, uh, young dancers, and they're always asking me about how to stay driven or motivated. And um, I always feel that a lot of society's issues at the moment uh, are really sparked by this obsession with what everybody else is doing and comparing yourself to everybody else and all the scenarios that, you know, are built around that. So I try to say to young dancers when they go into the studio, um, you need to envisage, you know, like a dog collar when they've had something done and you have to wrap a cone around their head to stop them from biting themselves or whatever. Um, I envisage wearing one of those. So it creates almost a tunnel vision and you go into the studio and you focus on what you're doing. You're focusing on your mission and, you know, every, you know, 10 minutes or so, you pull that visor or cone down, you have a look around the room, you get a little bit inspired by seeing what someone else is doing, or I could learn a bit from that. And then you put the visor back on and you focus on your mission because otherwise you just spend your whole life obsessing about what everyone else is doing. And your own mission has just gone away <laughs> along the seaside somewhere. So I, I try to think of that uh, back to your question about my own career and trying to better myself on stage and things. Um, I only ever compare what I have done to what I am doing at that time. Mm -hmm. So I always look at, you know, my career and thinking, okay, that you achieved that and that and that, how could you develop that further? Where could you go from there? 
and there is always, always more to do. Um, I think our profession being an art form, there is never, ever, ever this achievement of perfection because it just simply does not exist. And what I think is good will be the opposite of the person next to me, and that's the joy of art. Um, but that also means that in our world, you run the tendency of never being satisfied. <laughs> and uh, that's something I've had to learn over the years. This constant striving and trying to you know, better yourself or develop yourself is wonderful and it's such a motivating force. Um, but you need to occasionally just, you need to not even press pause or stop. You almost just have to slow the speed down a little bit to acknowledge you know, little milestones, little landmarks of, oh, actually I achieved that, that I'd set out to do. But of course, by the time you've achieved it, you've already got your eye on the next goal. So that's something I've had to learn. And I think I've gotten better at it since having children, to be honest, because I'm so much more aware of, you know, all the achievements that they're making and all the little milestones of, oh, they crawled or they did this or they did that. Or my daughter lost her first tooth the other day. And I'm, I'm much more aware of just acknowledging, you know, key moments in life. And I'm trying to relate that and link that back to my career as well, because, you know, otherwise you just go back to the dressing room after every performance and you're just never, ever satisfied. And that's honestly not a nice way to live your life. You have to still um, acknowledge or celebrate something positive <laughs> from all the work that you've done. Mm. And as you, when you use the car analogy, but, but putting good fuel in the car, both physically and mentally, and that's part of the good fuel that you need to keep going. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, of course, I don't think I've ever come off stage and gone, yeah, I, I nailed that tonight. Or yeah, that was, you know, amazing. I, I genuinely don't think I've ever come off stage and, and felt that way. Um, but I have come off stage and thought, you know what, this and this and this wasn't bad. I really enjoyed that tonight. Um, and I've gotten better at doing that because as I mentioned earlier, you just always come off stage and be disgruntled. And then what's the point you're, you're pushing yourself. And, you know, in my case, like I literally sacrificed my body for the profession. Um, Mm -hmm. so you've got to get something out of it, uh, for yourself. You can't just be doing it for the audience all the time or for your boss or, you know, for the choreographer. Uh, you need to get something out of it in life as well. And I think that carries on to everything for Mm. everybody across all professions. Yeah, absolutely. How do you feel when you're dancing? Well, my earliest childhood memory of dancing is complete freedom. I walked into the studio, a very shy little boy, and it was like this tiger was <laughs> unleashed. I felt free. I felt wild. And, um, yeah, it was just like they'd taken the, the reins off and I just flew around the room and then the hour finished and I went and stood behind my mum again and went home. Uh, so that was my earliest childhood memory. And sometimes, you know, when I'm flying around the opera house stage, certain ballets give me that, that freedom again, that sheer adrenaline rush of power and exhilaration and you just feel like you can you can fly and it's the most wonderful moment when that happens um of course other ballets are so demanding technically or artistically that you know that freedom is not always there but that's something that I do try and search for 
no matter what I'm performing. You know, I always, I always maintain if I'm in the audience and I'm watching somebody perform, whether that's dance or opera or anything, um, if I can relax watching that person perform, that to me is an indication that, you know, either that person's enjoying what they're doing or they have full faith in what they're doing. And uh, I feel like that's my responsibility as a performer to allow the audience to sit back in their chair and go along for the ride, to be honest. And when I feel free, I feel like that's me at my most um, empowered mode, I guess you would say, which ultimately means that the audience gets a better performance out of me. Mm. What's your favourite ballet or dance to perform? Oh, they're all just so unique and different. Um, you know, I love the dramatic ballets by Sir Kenneth Macmillan. His production of Romeo and Juliet was my first full-length ballet that I did as a principal role. And I was very young and I still to this day don't even know how <laughs> I did that. Um, but so that is always a, a magical ballet to perform. And every time it comes back, like I just dream that we could perform it once a week, every week, to be honest. I just, I love performing it. Um, and I've had a few goes now at his um, production of Myling. Uh, Crown Prince Rudolph is the most twisted and tormented uh, role. And for a male dancer, it's one of the most de- demanding and difficult roles uh, any man can do. So it's, uh, I love tackling those dramatic roles. Um, I love the, the sheer brilliance of Ashton's work he he just uses such a a wide vocabulary of dance steps that it's technically so demanding and many of his ballets just come across as you know tongue-in-cheek light-hearted and joyful ballets but they're some of the most difficult ballets you'll ever perform (laughs) and uh, a lot of the audience don't ever know that at um I I do enjoy (laughs) the challenge that he, he throws or threw at the dancers um, but obviously working with all the choreographers today on new works is a dream because it's your chance to really put your own stamp on these ballets. Um, the Royal Ballet is incredibly full and rich of the most diverse repertoire on the planet. And it's wonderful that we get to tackle these roles that we've created on, you know, the best dancers uh, uh, in the world. Um, but to have your own ballet created on you is, is magical. And I feel very fortunate that I've been in that position to work with so many wonderful choreographers. Mm. My question was a little bit like asking you, which one's your favorite child? Um, (laughs) (laughs) We will, we'll move on to your final um, priority, which was helping support and equip the next generation of dancers. So Mm. talk to us a little bit about that. Is that something you've always been aware of? Is it something, did you feel supported when you were younger? Well, yeah, I came from a motorsport family and, you know, my family knew nothing about dance or the arts, to be honest. It just wasn't their world. It's not that they didn't have an interest in it. It just wasn't their world. They weren't um, exposed to it, I guess you would say. So when I basically was thrown into this dance world, you know, I, age 17, went to the Prix de Lausanne in Switzerland, which is a huge international competition. And the, the prizes offer scholarships to you know, the best ballet schools and companies around the world. And I needed one of those scholarships. There was no way we were going to afford boarding school in London coming from 
Sydney. So um, uh, I was very fortunate that I, I got the gold medal. So that um, enabled me to choose the Royal Ballet School. And so instead of flying back to Australia the next day, the director of the Royal Ballet School said, fly to London tomorrow. You'll just, you'll just start tomorrow. And that was it. I just turned 17. And uh, I suddenly found myself in London on the other side of the world with no family. I didn't know a single soul. I'd never been to Europe before. Um, and, yeah, that was a, a huge, huge um, eye-opening experience. And it was also one of the most difficult moments of my life, to be honest. I, I struggled a lot. I felt like I was thrown in the deep end. I yeah, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know anything about the profession. Uh, I didn't know how to look after myself. And I don't just mean like going to buy food. I mean, physically and mentally, I didn't know how to cope with that scenario. How, how do you even process that scenario? Like I should feel like I was on top of the world. I just won the most prestigious ballet competition on the planet and achieved my dream of joining the Royal Ballet School but I was so homesick and out of touch and out of my comfort zone. I just didn't know anything about it. And, um, my, my first day at the Royal Ballet School, I was sent across to the Royal Ballet Company, uh, to hold a tray of cups in the Sleeping Beauty. They, they use students as extras. And, um, I found myself in these rehearsals with the most incredible people like, you know, Darcy Bustle and, and people like that. And I, was watching these rehearsals of Sleeping Beauty and that was genuinely the first time I'd really seen ballet properly close up. I'd only ever watched videos. So my first performance that I actually saw a full length ballet, I was on the stage in it. <laughs> so wow. I, it, just this overwhelming situation. Um, and then obviously joining the company as well. It was a very, the most wonderful moment because I was surrounded by incredible artists that, obviously motivated and inspired me, but I didn't have a clue what was going on. I, I didn't know anything, you know, the casting would go up for a ballet and, um, a ballet called symphonic variations. The casting went up in my first season and it's only six dancers, usually principals or first soloists. And, um, the ballet was created. I kind of remember the date off the top of my head, but it's, you know, during the war, I think, or something like that. And, uh, don't quote me on that. <laughs> it's not, I've lost the date. And, um, anyway, the casting went up in my first season and my name was down to learn the ballet, not to perform it, but as an understudy and people went crazy. Oh my God, this is huge. Wow. Oh my goodness. Like congratulations. And I didn't have a clue what was going on. I'd never heard of the ballet. I didn't understand the ballet. I didn't know what it was. Um, and then it was two days before the opening night of this. And unfortunately one of the dancers got injured. And so I was thrown on and I did the opening night alongside, you know, some of the greatest dancers that have ever, <laughs> have ever stepped on that stage. And I had no idea what I was doing. I literally just stood on that stage and just did as I was told. And then when the curtain come down and people were talking to me, I started to understand a little bit more about this ballet that was so highly acclaimed and held such a, a place in the company's heritage. And uh, I just didn't, I didn't know anything about it. I didn't, and I didn't know how to deal with what I'd just done. I didn't know how to react to that or you know, what, how do you even 
process a situation like that. <laughs> and um, so I think my focus on trying to help the next generation is, is not just educating them about the ballets because it's, it's more than that, but it's helping them to deal with, you know, the mental health side of things, the physical side of things, um, the pressures of always trying to please everybody around you and appear to be unfazed by anything. And I'm ready for anything. And if they say, can you do this? And you go, of course I can do it. Yeah, I can do it. But really you're like, I have no idea. I can't do this. And I'm terrified to do it. Or my body feels like it's going to break, but I have to do it. And it's all these pressures. And I just think, um, I want to invest a lot of my time and energy into supporting the next generation so that, you know, we talk about those scenarios and try to remove some of the, the negative things that could genuinely be improved these days in terms of just getting the best out of people, you know, working like a horse six days a week is not the best way to get the best result. Um, and so I really want to try and invest as much as I can, um, into learning and developing ways so that the next generation uh, benefit from that in some way. Mm. And so that their minds are supported as much as their bodies as well. Yeah. And it's a different, it's different to being wrapped in cotton wool. I'm not saying that at all. It's just, it's dealing with the, the real high end performance level of what they're all trying to achieve. Um, you know, dancers can't peak every four years when they go to the Olympics. That doesn't exist in our world. You have to peak every night when two and a half thousand people have paid their hard earned money to come and watch you or, you know, however hundreds of thousands of people that are watching you live in the cinema because it's being relayed that night. Um, each night is that audience members Olympics in their eyes because they might only go to the theater once every four years, or, you know, they might only go once in a lifetime and, um, it's their right to to see a wonderful performance. So um, that's a lot to deal with as a as a dancer. Yeah, that's a huge amount of pressure that I don't think any of us, most of us listening, couldn't even begin to understand. I mean, of course, you have to have perspective on it. Of course, I'm not opening somebody's brain and doing <laughs> you know, life saving surgery. But it's all relative at the time, you know. It's if you're the one stood in, in an empty stage and um, your Achilles snaps in two and a half in front of two and a half thousand people, um, that's a very real moment where you know it's a career-threatening injury, and that happens in front of public. So that's a huge thing to to live through and to obviously then come back from. Which I'm grateful that I have support around me and enough mental strength to, to push through that. But not everybody will. Um, so I think it's important for us all to, to keep working on things so that every generation improves. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, tell me, Stephen, what's not a priority for you? Um, oh, it's so hard just not to be political. <laughs> um, yeah, I think just this, all this um, borders and things like this, it just is something that infuriates me and um, we're all humans and we're all exactly the same. <laughs> so I think, um, you know, closing borders and separating ourselves from the rest of the world is seriously not a priority of mine. 
<laughs> That's a brilliant priority, <laughs> non-priority <laughs> to have. I'm, I'm with you 100%. <laughs> Unprioritize, deprioritize the borders, yeah? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and um, finally, what would you like to prioritize more? Um, I mean, you sound like you got it pretty well balanced. No, 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 I don't think anyone does. But I think um, just encouraging more of the the world just to be open with their minds. I would love people to just keep opening their minds to things across the world. And for example, if if a boy down the road from you if you find out that he dances, great. That's the end of the discussion. It shouldn't go any further than that. It shouldn't be turn into a bullying scenario. If a girl down the road is really good at football, great. The end. That's it. She shouldn't then have a hard time for doing that. And uh, I think it's just a case of, again, everybody opening their minds and also everybody in their professions reaching out beyond their small bubbles so, you know, I, I'm trying so hard to, to share, you know, my passion of dance, but also the world of dance. So it's the good and the bad, the injuries and all that sort of stuff. Uh, I'm trying to share that with a bigger audience, um, not to throw it in their faces and say, you will love dance or you will love ballet, but it's just to have some little um, understanding of what that world entails and remove all you know, ridiculous stigmas around each profession, to be honest, that, you know, we're all guilty of it. We all think, oh, so-and-so is this profession. Oh, they must be like this. And uh, it's just so wrong. I would love that to to ease in the world and just, you know, again, focus on what you're doing. Stop obsessing with what everyone else is doing. And I think everybody will be (laughs) much happier. I completely agree with you. All right, Stephen, thank you so much. I'm so looking forward to seeing you once you're back on stage. Thank you. Thank you. I can't wait to get out there again. (laughs) We'll all be looking out for it. Uh, Take care. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode of Priorities, I'd really appreciate it if you could make it your priority today to hit subscribe and also rate and review as this helps other people find it. Need a little incentive? Every month, I offer one free 60-minute online coaching session to a listener. All you have to do is hit subscribe, rate, review the podcast, and then email a screenshot of your review to prioritiespodcast at gmail.com. You'll then be added into the ballot for a free one-to-one coaching session with me in which we will help align the priorities of your life. Thank you so much for listening and take care.